Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on The Informant, the new Steven Soderbergh movie. Uh, I'm here rem- remotely speaking. We're trying our first uh, taping from home remote podcast with Dan Coyce. How are you, Dan? Hey, Dana. How are you? I'm also speaking remotely from Washington, D.C. Where you uh, are, a critic at the uh, Washington Post. Correct, and a contributing writer at New York Magazine. So, I, we're, we, we're, as we were just saying before we start, we're not sure we can guarantee the, uh, the sound quality of this podcast, but uh, it's an experiment, and we're going to see how it works, and hopefully it'll allow us to do a lot more um, podcasts from D.C. with Dan. So, uh, Dan, we did not see the informant together. Um, I think that you like the movie a little bit more than I did. I have a lot of, of questions and expressions of bafflement about it, but, um, but I think it's got some, some good style going, too. Do you want to start off with the, uh, the plot summary? Sure. Well, well, we'll at least get into it a little bit. Matt Damon plays Mark Whitaker, uh, who is a high-level uh, executive at Archer Daniels Midland. We should say the whole movie is based on a nonfiction book about you know, a, a real corporate scandal. Right, by, by Kurt Eichenwald. The movie is set in uh, Decatur, Illinois, mostly, and sort of other places around the Midwest where, uh, where Archer Daniels Midland is based. Um, and Whitaker is a, is a former scientist turned vice president at Archer Daniels Midland, who, um, in the course of his everyday duties, becomes disenchanted, it seems, with some things that are going on at the company, and ends up becoming a whistleblower um, a, um, for the FBI. And two FBI agents played by... Uh, the dearly beloved Scott Bakula and Joel McHale um, from The Soup take him under their wing and lead him through the process of building a case against Archer Daniels Midland for price fixing. The idea is that they, along with um, uh, other international corporations are fixing the price for various commodities. Um, And through a series of taped meetings and um, hidden microphones and hidden cameras, Matt Damon, Mark Whitaker, uh, leads the FBI into the heart of this investigation. But then only a little ways through, you realize that there's a little bit more going on uh, in this investigation and behind Mark Whitaker's character than you think there is. And the first clue you get that something's a little off about him and, uh, and about this story is uh, this voiceover that, that sort of takes over his character at time. We will see Matt Damon, Mark Whitaker, um, in a normal scene talking with his boss about lysine. And then we'll hear a voiceover, you know, where all of a sudden he just thinks about how his life is exactly like a Michael Crichton novel or um, how... Uh, or starts he starts reassociating re- on, on German vocabulary words that he knows, right? Right, or how or- he should really build an outlet store across the street from his house because he would do great. And so it becomes kind of a free associative. It's not a voiceover in the typical sense of, of an expository voiceover, which takes right. a, a while to figure out. And I think that's a great strength in the movie. In fact, it's sort of a trick that it plays on the viewer because as the movie starts, I mean, I was thinking this voiceover is so cumbersome. Doesn't Soderbergh know that you have to show and not tell? And a few right. minutes in, I started to realize, wait, he's an unreliable narrator. And the voiceover is actually, you know, revealing character. And I thought that was great. Right. And in the end, the voiceover winds up revealing some at least some form of mental illness. I mean, it turns out that Mark Whitaker is at best unbalanced and at worst uh, someone with like an actual borderline personality disorder. And it turns out as the investigation goes forward that he has been stealing money from Archer Daniels Midland throughout the investigation, um, millions and millions of dollars, as it turns out. And the movie follows him as he digs his hole deeper and deeper and deeper uh, and continues lying incessantly to the FBI, to the press, to Archer Daniels, to his wife. Um, And every time a lie is revealed, he follows it with a new, more desperate, less successful lie. Uh, And so the movie 
becomes in its in its second and third act sort of a long series of scenes of um, Matt Damon saying something definitely untrue, um, and then all the people around him just gaping at what he just said, and then Matt Damon coming clean and everyone around him smacking their heads in exasperation at what he just admitted to. Right. So it's sort of, I mean, in, in some ways, it's almost like a, a running gag on the, the corporate espionage movie you expect, right? Which is where the smart whistleblower sort of keeps revealing one horrible secret after another, and it goes all the way to the top. And, you know, you sort of feel that the rug is being pulled out from under you in terms of how bad the company could possibly be. In this movie, it's sort right. of the reverse. I mean, it's not that the company, the corporate malfeasance isn't taking place, but it ceases to be the focus of the movie or of the FBI's investigation. And you start to realize that the, you know, the person who's pulling the rug out from under you is, in fact, the Matt Damon character. Right. And in that respect, it's, it rem- this movie reminded me a lot of Burn After Reading in that it is, uh, it, it, you know, it takes a very familiar and happy movie style, and one that doesn't actually lend itself that easily to parody necessarily, um, and turns it on its head while still using and even abusing a lot of the tools of that style of movie. Um, when you're talking you know, about a, a familiar happy movie style, how would you how would you characterize the style of this movie? I, I mean, I would characterize it as the corporate whistleblower movie. Like it's, a, I mean, it's a, basically a genre at this point, from The Insider to um, like some of the great social dramas of the '70s to any number of TV movies about like you know, hapless corporate citizens who finally wise up and um, turn the tables on their own company. It's certainly a, a formula that we as viewers know really well at this point. And so to realize as the movie goes on that our hero is really like a semi-crazy, unreliable doofus and not just sort of the do, the sort of goofily honest dude we thought he was in the beginning – um, for me, was a pretty effective overturning of my expectations and led itself to a lot of comedy. Um, in the same way that Burn After Readings, overturning of the spy movie conventions, really led itself lent itself to a lot of comedy as well. You know, I wasn't crazy about Burn After Reading or this movie, although I thought that both of them had you know some really funny moments and and fine performances. Um, but when you describe that as Soderbergh's Gambit, it sounds so much more interesting than than what I actually experienced sitting in the movie. I mean, maybe you can explain to me or listeners can who have seen the movie, which presumably will be anyone who's listening, that I don't really get the rate of decay at which we're supposed to experience our loss of faith in Matt Damon's character. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, at the beginning of the movie, we think he's this sort of wholesome whistleblower. By the end of the movie, we realize he's a pathological liar and a possibly crazy person who we still have a lot of sympathy for. But then there's this long period in between where you're sort of having the trust bricks pulled out one by one from the building. And I felt that that whole part of the movie, in terms of the plotting, was just kind of mushy. I wasn't sure what, where we were supposed to be in relation to him. Then late in the movie, there's the first close-up in the movie, really, is... is quite late, three quarters of the way through or so, in that scene where he um, he's called out on the forged letter from his psychiatrist, supposedly, that claims that, I can't remember what the, the letter claims, it's defending him in some way, and essentially he's using a sort of um, mental illness defense. And it turns out this letter is forged, and the FBI agent, played by Scott Bakula, calls him on it. It's a really well-scripted and, and an effective scene, but it changes completely the tone of the movie. I mean, it sort, sort of turns from the movie from a comedy to a you know, a psychological drama at that moment that you see his face in close up and sort of see his suffering. And I felt like I either wanted to be invited in earlier or not be invited in at all. Right. Whereas I sort of, I agree with you that I had a great deal of uneasiness throughout the entire sort of second act of this movie about Matt Damon's character and about where it was going. But, but I really enjoyed that uneasiness and I felt like it was a, a specific effect that Soderbergh was going for that his goal in the entire middle part of this movie was to make viewers very uncertain about what was going on, 
or who to trust or who to believe in. And I felt like that was a calculated effect meant to sort of more or less put us in the same shoes as Scott Bakula, the FBI agent, and the executives at Archer Daniels Midland who have no idea what's going on, or Mark Whitaker's wife, played by Melanie Linsky, who who also is sort of lost at sea as her husband sort of spins these wilder and wilder lies. And and really, as much as Mark Whitaker himself, who who clearly about half the time doesn't seem to have any cognizance of the seriousness or the precariousness of a situation. I mean, he spends long periods of the movie convinced that when all this is over and Archer Daniels Midland's bad guys are taken out of the picture, they'll put him in charge because he was the white hat, you know? And so this, which as far as we can tell, that was actually his, his original incentive for becoming an informant, right? We don't really know why he went to the FBI. He wasn't tapped by them. He went to them. And if he knew that he was engaging in all this embezzlement, why would he do that? Unless he actually, had this delusional belief that somehow it would make him the CEO of the company to <laughs> to bring down the company. Right. And so in the end, I just really end up liking this movie um, not so much as a thriller or, or even exactly as a comedy, but more as like an extremely vivid and cool portrait of like a dissociative disorder in the sense that for large portions of the movie, I felt like I might have a dissociative disorder because I was so unclear I was so entertained on a scene-by-scene basis, but so unclear as to what could possibly be going on with this guy or what his motivations could ever be. And I found that a very pleasurable movie-going experience, but I can certainly understand why many viewers would not at all. Yeah, to me, that middle third just felt, I guess I experienced the dissociative disorder as boredom because it just felt mushy to me, (laughs) sort of mushy in terms of its plotting. I mean, I guess I was expecting something a little bit more like duplicity, not that I thought that was a completely effective movie, but the the Tony Gilroy movie from earlier this year that's all about, you know, sort of spying and counter-spying and Clive Owen and Julia Roberts sort of becoming double and triple agents. And obviously this isn't that kind of movie and it sort of wants to trick you into thinking that it is and then become something else. But I think that whatever that other thing was that it became in the middle was just not enough of a thing for me to, to care and follow. And then I started to come alive again at the end when you know we got a little bit of insight into Matt Damon's psychology, but that was a kind of too little too late for me. I'll tell you, I bet the exact moment where you um, started to tune back in was maybe the greatest toupee reveal in cinematic history. When um, in that scene in the car, when Matt Damon starts scratching his head in puzzlement, as to what's really befalling him. And all of a sudden his entire head of hair just moves wildly on his head. (laughs) Uh, And that was like a moment of like, great. That was like a revelation to me. That moment It's like, obviously I knew that Matt Damon, the actor is wearing a wig to have Mark Whitaker's ridiculous hair. But I loved the, uh, like the incredible burst of humanity that came out of Mark Whitaker when all of a sudden it was revealed that even his hair was fake. Yeah, that got that got one of the biggest laughs in the whole movie for sure as right. well. I mean, there's there's plenty of good laugh scenes, and I think Matt Damon plays the humor really well. I am not completely satisfied with his performance in terms of what he knows about that character's inner self. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I don't know how much we're supposed to know, but I don't know that Matt Damon knows exactly why his character is doing the things that he does. And I, I realize that that's part of the mystery of the character, but I still think right. the actor himself has to know. Somebody asked Philip Seymour Hoffman about this when he was making Doubt, the movie Doubt, which is about you know this completely ambiguous case of possible sexual molestation by this priest. And Hoffman plays the priest. And somebody just asked him, well, do you know whether he did it or not yourself? And he said, you know, yes, I think an actor has to know. I had to make a decision as to whether or not he did it. I can't exist in that ambiguity as an actor. And it seemed to me like Damon was existing a bit too much in that ambiguity. Right. Well, Philip Seymour Hoffman had the benefit of being able to ask John Patrick Shanley, so did he do it or not? And John Patrick Shanley told him. And I don't, I assume that Matt Damon probably met Mark Whitaker at some point. Mark Whitaker, who it turns out is now running some smallish company in like Florida or 
South Carolina? I can't remember. But I, cer- I agree with you that I don't think probably anyone in this movie knows exactly the reasons that Mark Whitaker was doing what he was doing. And I think that if you're going to dramatize that story without ever being able to fully understand the character, I think they sort of made the right choice to make that ambiguity not only part of the character, but sort of the defining feature of the film. Right. Um, so precisely the things that did not work for me were the things that worked for you, which, which means that we can really recommend this movie because, right. you know, it's just going to be a coin flip whether or not you get it or not. <laughs> we guarantee that you either will or will not like this movie. Dan, let's pause here for one moment for a word from our sponsor, Audible.com, the uh, audiobook provider on the internet with over 60,000 titles to choose from. We have a title to recommend. Uh, actually, the book that The Informant is based on is on Audible, and uh, Dan's got the information. What is it, Dan? It's The Informant, a true story. It's written by Kurt Eichenwald, the um, very experienced investigative reporter, and it's narrated by Arthur Mori. The book you'll find uh, ha- has very little of sort of the cheeky atmosphere of the movie The Informant. That's pretty much all Steven Soderbergh and uh, the movie's screenwriter pause to find out that it's Scott Burns. Oh, his, one of his favorite screenwriters, Scott Burns. But the book is really a fascinating look at how an investigative case is built and then how it can be undermined from within by one really, really terrible witness. And as regular listeners know, uh, Audible has a deal with Slate Podcasts where um, if you sign up through our webpage, you can get a free audiobook, which you get to keep even if you don't decide to keep your membership, which I guarantee you will. And the place to do that is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Okay, back to The Informant. Um, one thing that might make you like this movie is if you really enjoy seeing semi-obscure to famous comedians in tiny surprising parts. One thing I really noticed about the casting in this movie, aside from sort of the, I mean, the big role, which is Matt Damon, it's, there are no other big movie stars in this movie. Scott Bakula and Joel McHale play the other two major roles, and the also starring Scott Bakula and Joel McHale credit got a big laugh at the movie, I, at the screening I saw. But then minor characters are just played by sort of this Dean's list of sort of favorite stand-up and improv comedians from um, Andy Daly to Scott Adsit from 30 Rock to um, Patton Oswalt, all the way down to um, both Smothers Brothers, who are in this movie. One is a judge and one is an Archer Daniels Midland executive. Was it something deliberate on Soderbergh's part in terms of the tone and trying to make people realize that this is a comedy? Or did he just like those actors in those roles? At this point, I mean, I'm enough of a Soderbergh devotee, or at least a, a true believer, that I sort of have to believe that everything is deliberate on his part. You know, that he's made enough movies and he's clearly enough of sort of a master of the technical aspect and the storytelling aspects of making movies that I no longer view anything Steven Soderbergh does as an accident. And so I don't think it's just that he liked these guys. I think it's that he thought for this particular story, I want to fill the subsidiary roles with comedians, with funny guys who many of whom you'll identify as comedians. I mean, you can't cast the Smothers brothers and not expect people to laugh when they see them. Um, And I loved that in this movie as a way of just sort of keeping me off my guard and keeping me on edge and keeping me feeling like this this entire world could be made up or all like an alternate universe or in Matt Damon's head or I don't even know what is going on. But all of a sudden I'm just watching and, you know, Buster Bluth is playing a, an attorney hilariously. He's 
He's playing uh, Mark Whitaker's attorney or Paul F. Tompkins as an FBI special agent. I mean, everywhere you look, I there's say, just another... I absolutely love Tony Hale, who played Buster Bluth on Arrested Development. I loved him on Arrested Development, and he's, he steals every scene he's in in this movie as the, the lawyer, the incredulous lawyer of Matt Damon, who's eventually fired because he just he can't continue to defend this, you know, this random garbage that's spewing from his client's mouth. He's great. But the, the, the comedian casting was a little distracting to me. I, I would spend some scenes just thinking there's Patton Oswalt saying some stuff in a boardroom. It was, it was hard for me to get past you know, that, that recognition. Um, let's talk a little bit at the end about the, the look and the sound of the movie, because as you say, I think it is true that everything Soderbergh does in this movie is deliberate, certainly in terms of the visuals and, and the music, which are very marked and very sort of odd for the time period the movie takes place in. It's set in the 90s, starts in 1992 and goes through, I guess, well, 2006 when he gets out of jail. But principally, it takes place in the early 90s, and yet it has a completely 70s kind of look and feel. Am I right? I mean, the way the lighting, the color scheme, the use of music is all straight from a sort of conspiracy thriller of the 70s. Right. And, and I would I would separate them a little bit in that I think that the, the look of the movie was not necessarily specifically 70s. Like it was very brown and it was very tacky. But bear in mind that it was also set in Decatur, Illinois, which in 1992, um, as someone who grew up in the Midwest, I can I can uh, confirm that the Midwest in 1992 looked a lot like the 70s still. But I mean, it is the color palette is very brown. The hair is really kind of big. Um, and the clothes are really quite awful, like maybe even beyond the awful clothes that people wore in 1992. Um, and it's also just very flat. And there are a lot of scenes shot in front of brightly lit windows in which people are just really backlit to the point where you almost can't see their face. Um, which again, seemed just like a really, a very interesting and, uh, and unique and surprising visual choice for a movie that is about people whose motivations are unclear, um, and whose and whose persona personae are guarded. Um, and then the sound, as you say, is as seventies as can be in that he hired Marvin Hamlish to write a sort of swoony jazzy seventies bop score for this movie. And that sounds exactly like every Marvin Hamlish score you've ever heard times a million. I mean, here's my um, thing about the score. I absolutely love that music, qua music. It's, it's just great. I'd love to have the soundtrack and have it in my iPod and just bop down the street like a cartoon character to it. I mean, the best we can describe it to listeners is the music, to me, all sounded like, I believe it's Henry Mancini, but it sounded like that corny theme that was used for the It's a Great Little Car commercial, you know, in the 70s right. and 80s. Right? The entire thing has that sort of level of, of boppiness. And right. I think, that, but, okay, so, so love the music, but I think Steven Soderbergh really overuses it. He uses it to sort of punch home jokes in a, in a cutesy way that gets on my nerves. That, that score is just constantly coming in as sort of white guys are striding through boardrooms to have confrontations with each other. And I just don't really know what it's doing in there except to sort of remind us that we're in a funny universe or something. It's making us laugh. You're making me laugh just saying it right now. <laughs> I'm thinking back to all those scenes of white guys walking through offices. And Marvin Hamlish's music playing, and it's making me laugh right now. It may be that I'm the target audience for this movie. But it also, to me, touched on this idea that uh, Mark Whitaker sees himself as a character in like a movie or a novel. He sees himself as Agent 0014. He references the what Michael Crichton novel he thinks he might be in like twice. He talks about how everything he learned about lawyers he knows from the firm. We actually see him watching the firm at one point. Like, I love the idea of a, a character putting himself in the kinds of pop culture he actually understands, which in Mark Whitaker's case were Michael Crichton novels and like cheesy seventies spy thrillers, the kinds of movies that had those soundtracks. 
Um, and I really like that a lot. But for the most part, it just made me laugh a lot. You know, I have to say that I'm I'm being convinced by your defense of the movie here. I'm enjoying our conversation about the movie more than I enjoyed the movie itself. And it just sounds like all the things that I agree he was deliberately doing, which to me sort of had no purpose to you, just all all fed into one one hole. So I salute you. Uh, that'll be twelve dollars, please. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, Dan, thanks so much for uh, making this movie sound better than it actually did while I was seeing it, and thanks for joining me for this late spoiler special. My pleasure. Thanks, Dana. Our producer today was Andy Bowers, who is also the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.